Welcome back, everybody. We're going to get started uh, this morning. We are in Proverbs chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, typically, if you're new to the Bible, typically if you open your Bible just to the middle, it'll kind of fall open to the book of Psalms. Uh, P-S-A-L-M-S, that's Psalms, if, uh, if you're like me. Didn't know how to say it the first time I was in a Bible study, and, uh, and so uh, I, I didn't know it was Psalms. So uh, uh, if you open it to Psalms, uh, flip one book over to the right, you'll find the, the book of Proverbs, uh, book of wisdom, and 31 chapters. Uh, most people have a habit of reading a proverb chapter a day uh, and cycling through the book um, 12 times a year. It's, a, it's an excellent way uh, to, to get into, um, uh, get wisdom into your life. Um, this morning, we're going to cover three chapters, uh, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. And if you know anything about me, that's a, a miracle in and of itself. If we're not out of here by 1 o'clock, uh, it'll be amazing. I'm just kidding. It won't be that long, but um, but we're going to try to cover uh, three chunks of Scripture, all dealing with the same topic uh, in Proverbs 5, uh, 6, and 7. Uh, I just have to confess as you turn there, or before we start here, um, that I, I probably never would have preached on the topic of greed from Proverbs 1, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. It was all about the dangers of greed, and I found myself personally impacted by the message, uh, and I really enjoyed the study of that passage. But if I'm preaching topically through Scripture, I'm probably never going to turn to Proverbs 1 and preach that passage. Um, but it's the beauty of exegetical, expository, verse by verse, book by book. I don't pick and choose what topics I like. It's just the next topic that comes up based on the scripture is what I go through. Uh, and so I, I really enjoyed it. It was one of the highlight sermons uh, from this series for me personally so far. Uh, that was the second sermon that I did in Proverbs uh, about a month and a half ago. Uh, and, and I got to admit to you, I probably never would have preached Proverbs chapter 5, 6, and 7, but for a very different reason. Uh, the truth is I am inadequate to preach this message. I fall woefully short in the area that this passage describes. Uh, it is uh, a deeply sensitive topic. It is a painful subject for so many people. It strikes a nerve, uh, a very painful place. If you ever have a fear of going to a dentist, that when they drill, they're going to hit that one spot, right? Everybody's kind of cringing because nobody likes that, but that's kind of how this topic, um, it strikes a nerve for us. There's a painful a uh, difficult uh, situation for us in, in handling this topic. Um, I have a book on my shelf that I've referenced many, many, many times in the past 10 years called Sensitive Preaching to the Sexually Broken. And it is written in response to the onslaught from our culture in over-sexualizing our culture for five decades. There has been a flood in the market of overly sexualized images, movies, and things like that. And, and as a result of all of those things, there are sexually broken people. Uh, one out of four uh, men are sexually abused by the time they're 18. One out of three women are sexually abused by the time they're 18. Nobody escapes the problems of sexual pain in our culture if you haven't been um, affected personally, then you've been affected um, by someone else's sexual sin. Chances are good. It is a very difficult topic. And I also have to confess 
that the church has done a really terrible job of dealing with it. You probably have um, not heard many sermons on Proverbs 5 through 7, warnings about adultery and uh, sermons about sexual issues. Uh, But we're not going to skip it. Um, And we're going to rejoice in the fact that out of this debauched culture, God chose to redeem us from our sexually broken lives. And he chose to image himself in that which the enemy caused great shame and disgrace and great pain. God can even be glorified in the brokenness of our own sexually broken lives. So we're going to read all of chapter 5, some of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. And we're just going to work our way through it, and then I'm going to give you some trigger warnings and some, uh, some kind of Surgeon General warnings after that, and then we'll get back into the text after we read. So you follow along as I read. Let me start us with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you send it out for the purpose that you will accomplish that which you send it for. We know that this is a difficult topic. We know that Satan... Uh, works um, over time to create sexually broken people, uh, that it is a great source of shame and guilt and regret and pain, whether we have been abused or whether we have abused others or whether we have been um, sexually active outside of marriage or in many other ways, we bear the scars of a sexually broken culture. But we worship you today because you did not see fit to leave us in our guilt and condemnation but you chose to redeem us from that and to pull us out uh, and to image your son, Jesus Christ, even in the midst of that brokenness. We pray for today's message that it would be healing, that you would bring healing by your word, that you would bring healing by your spirit, and that you would bring healing through the people of God here today. Use this time for your glory and for your majesty and give us grace and strength and ears to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting in chapter 5, we have three more paternal lectures. Um, We're on lecture 8, 9, and 10. You remember from our previous sections through Proverbs that anytime he starts a new section with my son, uh, it is a a different poem or a different song uh, that the father is teaching to his son, and he's telling his son um, wisdom and advice that he needs for right living. That's what Proverbs is all about, wisdom for right living, for applied living. And so he's a father teaching his son, and, and each time it starts with my son, it starts a new section, and commentators and theologians call these paternal lectures or they call them um, uh, fatherly pleas or some other sort of teaching method from a father to a son. Uh, But it applies for mothers and daughters and women and men as well. Uh, But let's get into the text. We're going to cover three paternal lectures today. The first one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Now, at the beginning of every paternal lecture, it's the same formula. You remember this from last week. Every time he starts with my son, the first two lines are usually, hey, listen up, son. <laughs> Give me your attention. Focus up. I've got something to say. And it's usually an attention-grabbing device or a plea for him to listen or to keep his words or to treasure wisdom or something along those lines. That's the formula for these fatherly lectures. Then he gets into the material, verse 3, for this particular lecture. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. 
sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Once we get into chapter 6, skip down to verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold he will give all the goods of his house. But he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his grace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. The 10th paternal lecture, chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman. 
from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through the lattice, and I've seen among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I found you. I spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an axe, an axe, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. A friend of ours uh, named Liz, as a child, as a somewhat neglected child, remembers wandering through her neighborhood at all times of the day, without any real rules, without any real oversight. And she remembers watching her friends uh, when the streetlight would come on. You remember those days when the streetlight comes on, you would have to go home. Uh, those 80s children, 70s children maybe. Uh, she remembers those things and, and hearing parents calling all the other children that she had played with, but her parents didn't call. She remembers riding her bike and her friends saying, I'm not allowed to go past this street. I'm not allowed to go past that house. This is the edge of the boundary for me. And little Liz was so distraught because she didn't have boundaries. Her parents um, were busy or were unable or in some ways uh, neglectful of her. And so she remembers longing for those sorts of limits. She even said she used to set boundaries for herself, making it up. Oh, my, my parents said I could go one block further. Or my parents said that I had to come home at this time, knowing that her parents never said any of those things. She set boundaries for herself. She pretended like her parents cared enough to tell her how far was too far when it wasn't safe anymore and when she was straying too far. Wherever you find healthy and safe places, you find that there are defined, explained boundaries that are meant for your good and for your health and for your safety. 
wherever you find healthy, safe, defined borders, you find the purest expression of love from a caring parent. Think about water. Water is massively destructive when you think about floods and when water overflows the banks of a river. But water contained in the narrow channels, water with boundaries is helpful and useful. Fire, if you have a fire pit at night, it's safe, nice, enjoyable. Fire contained is helpful, but we see the uh, effects of the burning fires all over the Northwest, even as far as here, we see uh, smog in the air. Fire outside of healthy boundaries is deadly and destructive and life-threatening. Scripture presents it this way. God has given you good sexual desires. He created sexual intimacy. It is a good thing, not a shameful thing, not a guilty thing, not something that the enemy would have cause great guilt and shame, but your God-given sexual desire as its greatest expression within the boundaries, the safe, defined, and confined limits of your marriage between one man and one woman. The main point of these three chapters is do not commit adultery. And by the end of our message today, my prayer is that you see clearly the danger of adultery and that you see clearly also the beauty and the love of Jesus who experienced the full punishment of sin like adultery and the, uh, the ability for us to be reconciled and redeemed from our broken sexual past. Before we get into the text, let me just give you some kind of warning labels. The Surgeon General, right, on every pack of cigarettes and, and can of tobacco or whatever says, warning, this product is not helpful for you. Or anytime you, uh, you, you see a song you want to download and it has the E for explicit language, there are all these warning labels uh, and I have to confess, I, I don't think I've ever really had a warning label on a sermon, uh, but I have a few things I need to say because we're dealing with a serious topic here. I gave you warnings over the past few weeks to pre-read these passages and to shelter little ears if you needed to, but we're going to handle this in an adult way, and I don't want to uh, violate your trust as a parent or to introduce topics that you weren't ready to cover, but we're going to handle this text in the most appropriate way possible. General statement, number one, before we get back into the text. Number one, there is a trigger warning for those to whom this hits close to home. I want to help you resist the urge to wallow in self-pity or in condemnation or in guilt or in shame or in, in, in some sort of condemnation as you listen to this message. There are others of you here that feel like this message is for someone else, and I want to help you and encourage you to resist the urge to check out, thinking that this message has no application to you either. Second warning, number two, if you've committed adultery, or if you are someone who has been hurt by adultery, whether it was your wife or your husband, your mother, your father, your grandmother or your grandfather, your pastor, your youth pastor, your children's minister, your coach, or anyone else in your life. Hear me clearly. In Jesus Christ, there is grace and forgiveness. You can experience wholeness and redemption and life. The end of your life 
Your life didn't end when that happened or when you were affected by that. Jesus is able to heal the brokenness in your life. There is vertical restoration in your relationship with God. Do you understand that? There is also a process of horizontal restoration for this particular sin. It's a process, but it's also freely available through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The text that we've read here is not condemning you to a lifetime of guilt and shame without any recourse or process of reconciliation. That's good news. That's good news because this is a particularly devastating sin. Whenever we sin, we often go down two paths. One, we either want immediate grace and forgiveness and minimal consequences, right? Particularly in the sin. We want immediate grace, forgiveness, and minimal consequences. Or number two, we tend to want to wallow around in our guilt and shame, and we want to prolong forgiveness, and we want to sort of um, exaggerate the period of time to earn forgiveness. There's a better alternative to quick and easy consequence, free forgiveness, or groveling to earn forgiveness, and it's engaging in a process of biblical relational reconciliation. It's a process of healing and recovery from sexual sin, but it's not easy, and it's not quick, and it's not simple, and it's not cheap. But it is 100% worth it, and it is 100% necessary to keep you moving toward a fruitful, contributing kingdom impactful life. Some of the most godly and fruitful men and women I know have come from some of the most broken sexual backgrounds as they've worked through a process of reconciliation. It is not out of your grasp. Jesus can fully redeem and restore and heal and cleanse and help you through those broken times. Here's the third warning or um, statement regarding this text. Solomon is warning his son, but this doesn't, it's not limited to men only, this warning. Women, if you heard as you listen to this text, it almost seems like the woman is vilified and the man is captured somehow. But men are just as, if not more willing to engage in adultery as women and often pursue it and often persist in it. Solomon might be warning his son, but if he was talking to his daughters, the, the, the advice would apply as well. This isn't just about an adulterous woman. Men are just as likely, if not more likely, to seduce women. Exchange the language if you're a woman listening to this. Imagine similar instruction from a father to a daughter or from a mother to a daughter warning you about men who try to sinfully seduce you. Fourth warning label. The parent is the one teaching the young person about sex. Not the culture, not the school, not the world, not movies, not books, not television, not apps, not social media. The parent diligently, intentionally has conversations with the child, teaching the beauty within the boundaries and the dangers outside of the boundaries. And final warning label, applied wisdom happens in a variety of situations. 
Let me explain that. Applied wisdom happens in a variety of situations, though Solomon is only giving what's called a rhetorical device called concreteness. He gives one specific scenario. Do you remember seeing it in Proverbs 7? I saw a young man. He was, he was, and there was a woman. She was walking on the street. It was a very specific situation. But it was a principle implied in a concrete example that has broader application. Do you understand that? Just because it was a young man going out to see a young woman doesn't mean that that same advice doesn't apply to a young woman going out uh, for a, a, a social event or something like that, and that a man can't just be as equally as seductive as the woman in Proverbs 7. It has broad application, okay? I've never had to say so much just to start a sermon. <laughs> Uh, but with an introduction like that, you get the impression that from a biblical point of view, it's better not to commit adultery. Adultery is painful. Divorce is intensely painful. Infidelity is intensely painful. Just last night, I went to uh, run an errand and I got into a conversation with a guy and he just began to open up about his wonderful marriage and his blended family and his children. And, and I said, well, how many kids do you have? And he told me, and, um, and he said, well, we're a blended family. And I can tell you that glory to God, it didn't start this way. We came together after both of our spouses had an affair and ran off with the person they had an affair with. And because both of their spouses cheated on them and left them thinking the grass is greener on the other side, he said, the funny thing is they've each moved on again. But over the last 17 years of this remarriage, they've worked through their pain and misery and challenges. The kids are affected deeply even to this day by their adultering parents. And this couple has found redemption in their story. They found a remarriage together and now have a thriving ministry at a local church where they do premarital counseling and marriage counseling for those in, uh, facing remarriage situations. Though it's painful, and though many of you have walked through the pain of adultery or some sort of sexual sin, there is redemption and help and hope. So let's get back into the text and let's get into some specifics of how we can get there, how we can find redemption, and help through this topic. There's a popular literary technique called a frame narrative. All right? A frame narrative is when in a story you have a main character telling a story. All right? Think uh, Chaucer, Canterbury Tales. Every character is telling a story. Uh, think uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein stories within a story. Uh, think Forrest Gump, right, sitting on a park bench, telling a story. Uh, think Megamind falling through the air as the beginning of the movie starts, saying, how did I get here? And that story within a story, that frame narrative, allows the storyteller to go back to the beginning and explain how we got there. So we're going to start getting into the text with the end in mind. So that's a good way for us to start this message saying, how do we get here? What's the end look like? In the end, in chapter 5, 6, and 7, if you follow along, I'm going to walk you through the end. 
The end result of a person who persists in adulterous behavior. Not the person who says, Lord, forgive me, uh, seeks reconciliation, seeks redemption. Not the one who is pursuing grace in Christ and walking with Jesus, but the one who persists, who says, I'm going to keep going with my sexual sin and with my adultery. This is the end of that person. The father warns the son. The mother could warn the daughter. Chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 says the end. She is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. In chapter 5, verses 9 through 14, he's admonishing the son, don't give your honor to others and don't give all of your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and all your labor goes to a foreigner. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline. How my heart hated reproof. I didn't listen to my teachers. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. If you underline verse 14 or circle it, that's the end state of the one who persists in adulterous behavior. Chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, he appeals to heaven. The eyes of the Lord are uh, watching the path. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. Chapter 6, verses 26 through 29. A married man hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Can he walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Chapter 6, verses 32 through 35. The one who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. Chapter 7, verses 22 through 23. All at once he follows her like an ox going to slaughter or a stag that is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it costs his life. And then the end of chapter seven, many a victim she has laid low. All her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. Do you see the end of this person? Either male or female. Listen to the adjectives that describe the person who persists in sexual immorality. Bitter, dead inside, no honor, fruitless, impoverished, groaning, angry, hateful, regret. Did you hear it in the voice? I didn't listen. I hated discipline. Ensnared like an animal, foolish, led astray, hunted down by jealous spouses burned by fire, scorched on the feet, punished, lacking sense, destroyed, wounded, dishonored, disgraced, avenged, slaughtered, pierced in the liver, costly, victimized, and slain. You had to put that on a tombstone. You would have a picture of the most miserable life. This is the lie from Satan 
is that a moment of pleasure will bring you some promise of peace, some promise of satisfaction, some promise of fulfillment, and yet it doesn't deliver. It delivers the opposite. That's the way this ends. And Satan will dangle the lure in front of you saying, you walk in this way. Walk in the adulterous way and persist in it. And if you do, this is your end. That's the way this ends. So let's go back to the beginning. Now that we see the picture of how it ends, what does Solomon do to warn his son? How does he help him? What does he teach him to avoid getting into this trap? Back to the beginning, preparation from the father. Look at what the father does. The father warns, the father teaches, the father pleads with the son, warning him of the dangers of this particular lifestyle. He starts teaching him about the dangers of adultery when he's at the right age. Now Israel at this time, the marrying age for a male was between 14 and 18. The marrying age of a woman was between 12 and 14. That's early. Solomon's not introducing this in the crib, okay? Uh, This is uh, an older older child. This is an older son uh, that he is teaching. And he's doing a few things in his speech to talk to the child about this particular issue. He identifies the wayward person, whether it's a man or a woman. In uh, 1.5.3, he says it's a forbidden person. In chapter 6, 24, it's an evil person. In 6, 24, it's an adulterer. In chapter 6, verse 26, it's a prostitute and a married person. In 6, 29, it's a neighbor's spouse. In chapter 7, verse 5, it's again the forbidden person or the adulterer. In chapter 7, verse 10, it is Uh, identified as either a woman, and as we've talked about, it can apply to a man as well. He identifies, helps the son, helps the child identify who to avoid. He then uses a variety of approaches to warn and persuade the child. You may not be able to see this very clearly, uh, but throughout the past couple weeks, I have um, gone through the three chapters, the three paternal lectures, and color-coordinated all the different aspects of the father's teaching to his son. And I have this available for you if you'd like a copy of it afterward. But everything that you see in blue is the father's desperate plea to warn the son, the parent, the mother to the daughter, the desperate plea to warn the child. Have you ever had someone say... um, Yeah, I wish you would have warned me that this would have happened. Uh, And then you can look back and say, I I did warn you. I told you here. I told you there. I told you here. I told you there. Um, Solomon is making sure, if you could see by the the sheer volume of blue ink on this page, that it is not from lack of warning that people walk into these sexual sins. The father uh, goes through several ways. He teaches, um, uh, he uses commands commanding the child, do not do this. He uses teaching, describing what the wayward person is like. He teaches what the marriage should be like in chapter five. He talks about the good boundaries in which God has set up sex. 
He teaches him that sex is good, invented by a good God, not a shameful thing, not a dirty thing, given by God for good, for intimacy, for procreation, and to be enjoyed in the proper boundary lines of marriage. He warns his son, showing him where the wayward person would end up. He gives a parable talking about fire in the lap. He appeals to honor. He appeals to God. He appeals to the son to consider the judgment day. And he gives a storytelling and personal example in chapter seven. How can we apply this parents? In seminary in 2005, I was first challenged with the idea of family worship. Family worship was presented to me and it always felt like something uh, just out of, out of reach for, for me. Something that was just too difficult. I couldn't answer the right questions. It felt too hard. It felt too difficult. But taking a class, uh, I learned some of the secrets of family worship. One of them being just initiate. Just initiating and setting up a time where you have to do three things. Read the Bible, pray, and sing. And if you can just do read, pray, sing and cover just systematically topics of Scripture, just in the family environment, that's our practical New Testament application of Deuteronomy 6-7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. That family worship model, and I'm not great. We did this for a period of years. But in that, and through different types of family worship and reading scripture along the way with different ones of my children, oftentimes these topics would come up in passages that we were reading. And it was an opportunity for us to teach about these things in sort of the natural rhythms of life. Parents teach children. Don't leave it to this culture. Don't leave it to the school board to teach your children. Don't leave it to your iPad or to your iPhone. Don't leave it to television or movies. You're throwing your children to the wolves if they're learning sexual values from this culture. It will only end in brokenness, okay? As uncomfortable as it feels, as painful and as hard as it is, do your best to initiate these conversations and to talk about them Diligently, Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise. Let's get toward the end. The father encourages the son to do uh, a couple of things. Resist and flee from temptation. He's urging the son to resist and to flee from temptation. The trouble is this particular sin It's massively alluring. Why is this temptation so strong? It's so strong, uh, and you can see it as he lines it up, the father to the son. There are two ways in which this temptation is particularly potent. There are the looks of the adulterer, and there are the words of the adulterer. Now, you would think that the first one, the looks of the adulterer, are primary. It's not. There's really only two verses in this entire section underlined by orange. Um, 
You can't see that, but, but describe the looks of the woman. Chapter 6, 25, don't desire her beauty. Don't let her capture you with her eyelashes. Probably a couple of other things he could have mentioned besides eyelashes, but he says don't desire her eyelashes. Um, in chapter 7, verse 10, she is dressed as a prostitute provocatively. This goes both ways. Men and women uh, can... can um, appear in immodest ways as an alluring kind of way. But that's not why this temptation happens to be so strong for Solomon and in our text. It's actually the words. The words of the adulterer carry the force in Proverbs 5 through 7. Chapter 5, verse 3, her words drip honey and they're smoother than oil. Chapter 6, verse 24, the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Chapter 7, verse 5, she has smooth words. Chapter 7, verses 11 through 21, she gives a long, seductive, and persuasive speech that as I broke it down, uh, looks like this. Uh, Number one, it's loud speech or bold speech coupled with aggressive behavior. She grabs him and says alluring, seductive words and kisses him at the same time. Loud and bold, aggressive sexually. She is attempting to overthrow him with forcefulness of persuasion. She appeals to religious speech. Can you believe it? She uses spiritual language. Hey, I went and paid my vows and I I went to worship this morning and and God has blessed me. He's happy with me and, and now he wants me to be happy with you. She appeals to flattery. I went out to look and I found you. There you are. I was looking for you. She appeals to him with seductive speech. I made all the preparations for us to enjoy our night together. She uses disarming speech. Surely he would have been concerned. What about your husband? Oh, that's okay. He's gone away. He took a bag of money. He won't be back for a long time. She uses persuasive, seductive, and compelling speech. And the young man in Solomon's story was no match. The moment he walked down the street in her direction, it was as good as done. How do we resist this temptation? How do we as Christ followers resist the temptation to have sex outside of the boundaries of good, godly marriage? James 1 teaches us that it starts with your inner life. It starts with your eyes. It starts with your mind. James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Once you have overgrown thoughts that are just running rampant in your mind and heart, it puts you on a path toward encroaching desire that will once give birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Isaiah 59 forces they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Psalm 714 says, The wicked man conceives evil, and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. And that's the picture of temptation. It starts in your mind, starts in your heart. It starts with what you see, the intake, and what you dwell on, what you think about, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is true, whatever is trustworthy. Dwell on those things. When you fill your mind with the wrong thing, it is appealing to those desires that will, that will draw out sin. Listen, it's not a sin to be tempted. 
You've heard the phrase that uh, we can't help the birds from flying over our head, but we can keep them from building a nest in our hair. Meaning temptation is like the bird flying over our head. It, It comes and goes. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted. Temptation is not evil. Temptation is the normal Christian life. Where it becomes sin is when it plants itself in our mind and goes through this process of hunger and desire that's birthed out eventually into sin. Our recourse against it is to flee and resist. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're promised a way of escape in the midst of temptation. Paul writes to the Corinthians saying, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he's standing take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. You don't have to give in to temptation. You don't have to allow temptation and desire to grow and to express itself. How can we end this in the most biblical, gospel-centered way? You remember the way the sermon started? We started with the end in mind. Solomon warning his son about what the end of the life looks like. It's bitter, dead, no honor, fruitless, groaning, angry, hateful, full of regret, all those things. But the good news is that that end does not have to be a reality for anyone in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus endured the particular punishment for that sin. Did he not? The shame, the regret, the pain, the humiliation, uh, the scorning, the death, all of that, Jesus died on the cross, taking the punishment for adultery, so you don't have to. Your story does not have to end this way. If you have had sexual sin in your past, and it is destroying and it's a corrosion to your soul, it does not have to to, to end that way. I'll never forget flying to Charlotte, North Carolina for a ministry conference about 15 years ago. I was being hosted by one of the leaders of the conference, a godly guy, uh, very very much being used in his local church and in his local um, area in Charlotte in ministry. And as soon as he picked me up, he said, uh, hey, we're going to my house and I just have to tell you, um, 20 or so, 15 or so years ago, I had an affair and um, the woman with whom I had an affair had a child and that child um, is at the house right now and he doesn't know all the backstory and all the details. So I just say that to you to let you know <clears throat> not to bring, you know, not to ask too many questions or, or not to poke. And I just am kind of overwhelmed by this. I, think I'm, I was never going to do that anyway. Um, but then he went on to tell me that I said, well, what happened? How did, how did this, how did this, how, how did this get redeemed? How are you able to talk about this and still be thriving in ministry right now? And he said, uh, it was incredible the work that the Lord did through my sin and brokenness. He said, I wasn't a believer at the time and I thought I was a Christian, but, but I wasn't living a Christ-like life. 
and I was pursuing all these things on the side while I was also at the same time trying to act like a Christian in front of everybody else. And I got ensnared and I got caught and I got involved in this relationship. And I'll tell you what happened. My wife responded in the godliest way possible. She was furious. She held me accountable, but she also over a period of years gave grace and patient love and mercy and mixed with confrontation and truth and this process of reconciliation. And as a result, I gave my life to Christ. The woman I had an affair with gave her life to Christ. Our son that we share, we co-parent now is also a believer and God has restored my life that I thought I had burned down. If I've heard one story like that, I've heard a hundred. How God, through a process of redemption and salvation, takes broken pieces of a person's life and puts them back together in a beautiful way that makes this mosaic that demonstrates the glory of God in the mystery of his mercy, the mystery of his grace. We cannot out sin the grace of God in this area. The beauty of the gospel is that where adultery says, I love me and my own pleasure and my sexual desires come first. In the gospel, Jesus says, I love you and I'm willing to sacrifice myself and crucify my desires so that you can have forgiveness and you can be right with God. The beauty of the gospel is demonstrated so clearly in John chapter 4. When Jesus meets a woman at the well, and when he, in conversation with her, says, would you go and get your husband? And in John 4, 16, the woman answered him and says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. Can you imagine? Five husbands, five broken marriages, five divorces, guilt, shame, compounded times five with currently a live-in boyfriend. Verse 19, the woman responds, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Jesus gets to the point of the gospel saying, I am the one who speak to you and the Christ and the Messiah. The woman in verse 28 leaves the water jar, goes into town and says to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town uh, and they all went out of the town and came to him. Jesus is so satisfied by this encounter with this broken woman that even though he was starving and hungry and thirsty from the journey, he couldn't even go into town. The disciples left him by the well. As soon as they come back, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his works. The woman was so excited about what Jesus did in her by giving her grace and mercy and forgiveness. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Can you believe that? This woman who is so shamed, so guilty, he lifts her head. He bestows on her grace saying, I know everything that you've done and I still love you. Isn't that grace? Isn't that the grace of God? That he knows your shame. He knows your guilt. He knows your pain. He knows your past. And he's not there to condemn you. He's there to lift your head and to say, my grace is not extinguished because of what you've done. It's deep. It's plentiful. There's a reserve. There's more grace and more grace. You see it again in John chapter 8, where the Pharisees and the scribes grab a woman who is caught in the act of adultery bringing her out in verse four, they threw her on the ground in front of Jesus saying, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded to stone such people, men or women should have been stoned. So what do you say? They said this to test him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as They continued to ask him questions. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus, the judge, Jesus, the author and perfecter, of our faith, the author of scripture by the Holy Spirit had every right to condemn her. But listen to what he says to her in verse 10. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Even in church, Those who sin sexually often face condemnation. But I want you to know the beauty of the gospel demonstrated in the person of Jesus is that you are not condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 3.17, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's the grace and mercy of God in the face of some of the most painful and difficult sin there is. Sin that we wouldn't confess in a congregation like this. God says, I know it, I see it, and there's grace for it if you'll repent and turn to me by faith. Our Father, we are astounded by the overflow of grace and mercy in such a painful and difficult area. And in this particular time in 2021, 
in a culture that for five decades has been steeped and saturated in sexual immorality that has progressively increased. It leaves a church of those who are redeemed, who are not without sexual scars, who are not without lingering temptations and who are not without brokenness and pieces of brokenness and difficulty and struggle with temptation and struggles for others to forgive and to give grace and to have mercy and to offer forgiveness and to teach and to turn back the tide that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. I pray in Jesus' name that you would grant healing and grace through your word. I pray that all those who listen to this difficult message would walk away encouraged by the grace of God and Jesus Christ who experienced the death that we deserve so that we may have the life that he lived. I praise you that he tells us, each and every one, I know everything about you and I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Lord Jesus, would you forgive us because we often treat sin as though it weren't serious. Would you grant us eyes to see sin as you see it, that we may see it as a fire in a lap, that we may see it as leading to death, that we may see it as something that we must root out and repent of and walk in accountability and in godliness and in holiness. Would you purify your church? Would you let it begin with me? Would you let it begin here on these seats? And would you allow us to walk in the next year and in the coming years in redemption and reconciliation from our brokenness related to sexual sins? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.